good to see you here on this Sunday morning um, as we celebrate Memorial Day weekend together. If you have your Bibles, please open to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. This morning we're going to be looking at Absalom's Rebellion. That is my title this morning. So in our text, for those that have been tracking with us, what's going on in 2 Samuel as we've looked at the life of David is that David is still facing the consequences um, and repercussions of his sin regarding Bathsheba. God promised David in chapter 12 that this thing you did in secret, this thing that you tried to cover up with deception and ultimately with murder, I'm going to do it in front of the whole world. I'm going to raise up an enemy out of your own household that is going to bring my judgment on you. Now, we did not know then who that would be, but as our story is tracked forward, if you haven't read ahead, it's going to be Absalom. Spoiler alert, the son that is being brought back from exile is going to be the one who brings ruin on David's house. And so, if, so chapter 12, God introduces the consequences. In chapter 13, Amnon, David's son, becomes infatuated with Tamar, his half-sister, rapes her. David does nothing about this evil act. Absalom takes vengeance two years later and put, puts Amnon to death. And then we find Absalom in exile for two years. And then last week, through the manipulation of Joab, David's general, for probably good purposes, Absalom is brought back. And then after two more years, Absalom manipulates Joab and David, and he ends up being brought back into the presence of the king. Now, as I argued last week, from Absalom's perspective, this is all the hand of God preparing him to be king. But as we talked about last week, God's intentions and man's intentions are not always aligned. So this really isn't for Absalom's good. This is really for David's judgment. So God intends to bring judgment on David, but Absalom, he is sinfully seeking to steal the throne. And that's the great problem in chapter 15. Though God intends to punish David, God will also punish Absalom. Because Absalom's intentions are sinful. They're not God's. Absalom intends to steal, kill, and destroy and here's my point. Though Absalom is an instrument of God's judgment, God will judge him for his intentions. Now, that may seem contradictory to you. You're like, God intends to punish David with Absalom, and then God's going to judge Absalom. That might seem contradictory to you, but it's biblically consistent. You see, God's intentions are always right and good and based on his infinite wisdom, justice, and righteousness. And God can use others... For his purposes, even though their intentions are not good and are not just and are not righteous in any way. And then God can judge them for their sinful intentions. And last week I argued very clearly that without that, this is absolutely what happens at the cross. God's intentions are to save the world, God's intentions are to show his justice, righteousness, mercy, and grace. But what are the intentions of Rome and the intentions of Pilate and the intentions of the religious leaders? To murder Jesus. They intend evil. God intends good. All right. So again, 
This morning, we're going to see how Absalom fulfills God's judgment for David. But Absalom won't have the last word. God's covenant promises to David are never in question. Though he's under God's discipline, God's covenant promises to David are never in jeopardy. God had promised back in 2 Samuel 7 that sin and death would not remove God's plan to establish David's line forever. You see, God's going to do that through his chosen heir, which isn't Absalom. It's Solomon, which has been hinted at already in the text. So, Absalom's judgment, again, will not arrive, though, for a few more chapters. So as we look at chapter 15, and I'm going to read the text as we go through my points to save time, what you're going to see in, in, in chapter 15, we're going to look at just the first 12 verses. That's a good place for an amen. That's a good place for an amen. Just the first 12 verses. What we're going to see here is the story of a rebel. Now, our world loves a good rebel. What we're going to see here is the story of Absalom as the rebel. Absalom, if you remember, he has everything he could ever want. He's the son of King David. He's been spared from being executed for murdering one of his own brothers. He's been brought back into the company of David and the royal family. He has all the money. He has all of the looks. Remember, he's the best-looking guy in all of Israel. He has a beautiful family and children. He has all of these things, and yet it's not enough. That's the thing about our rebellion, isn't it? That it, we can never be satisfied. We can have everything this world offers, and it's never enough. And that's the story of Absalom. He has everything he could ever want, but it's not enough. And that's what we're going to see, that Absalom is the story of how sin and arrogance and pride and an insatiable desire for power leads to ruin. Not just personal ruin, but also the near ruin of an entire nation. And so what I want to point out is how a rebellious heart works throughout this text. Now many of you might be saying here, well, hey, Jacob, I am greatly acquainted with the rebellious heart. I have lived and battled with one every day of my life. Well, that's true. That's true. But seldom are we acquainted with how far-reaching our rebellious hearts can go if given the opportunity. You see, we'd all like to think we wouldn't do things that are as bad or as wicked as others, but we've never been given the opportunity. We've never been given all the means to do it. We've never been given all the power or all the money or all of the position to do those things. Praise God, that's His grace. That's God's grace. So, but you need to remember the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? You see, sin in our lives is much more subtle and much more sinister than we can imagine. So I want to give you four truths about a rebellious heart working in the, in the life of Absalom. So here they are, four things, and you look at this and ask yourself, are these things present in your heart? Because this is what a rebellious heart looks like. First, a rebellious heart desires worldly significance and standing. That's what a, that's what a re rebellious heart ultimately wants. Look at verse 1. It says, and after this, this is after Absalom is brought back into the presence of King David. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Hmm. 
now that Absalom is seemingly back in the good graces of King David after these five long years, it's time for Absalom to go to work. He gets himself a chariot and 50 men, a chariot horses and 50 men to run before him throughout the city. Now imagine yourself there in the city. Maybe this is just the prince being princely, showing off his status. Maybe he just likes attention and he likes an entourage. Maybe it's just showmanship. Well, you need to remember what a chariot is. Back in modern day time, in modern times, the equivalent of a chariot is a tank and a Ferrari put together. That's what it is. That's what it is. It's unstoppable in military combat. There is nothing that can stop a chariot that can move at 30 miles an hour with men on top of it with bows, with spears, and with swords. And if that's not enough, he gets his own chariot and he goes riding through the city with 50 men running before him. Now, what this is, is it is a, stat, it is a status symbol of power and prestige. Chariots are very hard to come by. What Absalom really wants is significance in the eyes of the world. He wants preeminence in the kingdom. Now, in either case, Absalom is the first Israelite in the Bible who is said to ride on a personal chariot. Now, Joseph rode Pharaoh's chariot when he was made second in command in Egypt. That's not his chariot. So, David had captured chariots from his military exploits. He's never said to have used them. In fact, the Bible says over and over again that it's the enemies of the Lord who trust in chariots while Israel trusted in the names of the Lord their God. That God gave them military victories, not the presence of chariots. So, it seems as though Absalom uses his position as a royal son to acquire his father's chariots and he uses them for his own ends. It's a pompous display um, that demonstrated to all of Jerusalem that Absalom ultimately desired to rule. Kings ride in chariots. The kings of Israel's enemies ride in chariots. The text here is silent, by the way, on what David thought or knew about this situation. But it's safe to say that he most definitely heard about Absalom's daily parade if he didn't see it himself from his balcony. The old city of Jerusalem is not that big. So it seemed as though Absalom uses his position and used him for his own ends. Now we have to recognize here that Absalom is is worlds away from his father David in this regard. Absalom is worlds away from his father. David, listen, Absalom wants the world's approval and not God's. God's will is the farthest thing from his mind, as you'll see as we go through the text. David, his father, was this lowly shepherd taken from the field who stood between his sheep and lions and bears. It was David who dared not lift his hand against Saul, the Lord's anointed. It was David who did not seek glory for himself or reach out his hand to take the throne. David cared more for God's approval, not significance in the eyes of the world. Now, here's where you need to pay attention. You see, it's David's rightful heir, Jesus, who warned us against living for the world's approval or the world's significance or doing things with pomp and with 
is looking for pomp and prestige to make a show of things. Jesus says in Luke 20, he says, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. He says, they will receive greater condemnation. You see, my point is, may we all long for the approval of Jesus more than the approval of the world. May we care, for the, may, may we care more for significance in His eyes than caring for what the world thinks of us. You see, the Bible says this, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of man who brings a snare. So that's what a rebellious heart does. Think about all the times in your life when you want the world, when you want significance, when you want standing. And let me tell you something here, young children, let me tell you something, teenagers, young adults, this is what social media is selling you. They're telling you that the only way to have significance in this world is to do things that the world approves so that they'll look at you in a certain way. It's a heart that cares more about what the world thinks than what Jesus thinks. That's a rebellious heart. Second, a rebellious heart manipulates people for its own purposes. That's what a rebellious heart would do. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. <laughs> you have to notice here that Absalom isn't a lazy do-nothing when it comes to his plans to usurp his father and take his throne. It's the early bird that gets the worm. And it's the early schemer who creates the schism. Absalom's plan is to, is to meet people who are coming to King David for a ruling on their case at the gates of Jerusalem. He wants to intercept them before they enter the city and demonstrate that he alone cares for their plight. Now this is the politics of charm and persuasion. In simpler terms, it's manipulation. Now Abner, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Absalom here demonstrates incredible social skills. He has incredible emotional intelligence. He can read a room. Absalom can not only put on a show with chariots, he can be an every man's man. He can get his hands dirty with the common people. He can roll up his sleeves. He can fix potholes. He knows where there are from riding his chariot. He can hold babies for photo ops. You have to hold them for a long time in this day because they can't take pictures. They have to paint you holding a baby, all right? He can do those things. He can lay on the charm like no one else. He can chit-chat with anyone, match their accent to perfection. And he gives the impression that when you speak to him, he cares deeply about your plight and your story and your hometown. Now look at verses 4 and 5 and see how the manipulation becomes more clear. It says, then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. 
And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Now we find here the politics of promises and people-pleasing. Not just charm and persuasion. This is promises and people-pleasing. For those that come to the city for a ruling, you have to notice that it's very convenient that Absalom has never heard a case that he could not give a favorable ruling to. It's very convenient. I would give every man justice. And of course, it's also very convenient for all of Israel that if he were judge, the backlog of cases and the long lines to see the king would never be an issue. Everybody would have a fast pass. Absalom finds it very easy to criticize the current administration while providing the simplest of solutions. And if that wasn't enough to make sure you understood where Absalom's heart was, he would hug you and kiss you like you were a long-lost relative. Now, verse 6 shows you just how effective Absalom can be. Look what it says there in verse 6. It says, Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Stole their hearts. Did not earn their hearts. Did not win their hearts. He stole the hearts of Israel. For four years, Absalom stood at the gate and stole their hearts. You have to admit, you know, he's a patient and calculating man. And my point here is that he doesn't care a thing about the people of Israel. It's all a show. They aren't people to be shepherded or protected or served as God's servant. They're simply tools and pawns to be manipulated. They are a means to an end. They are sheep to be sheared and footstools for his feet. Again, the text is silent on David regarding this. Does David know? Does he care? Does he not suspect anything? Is he really this oblivious when he's been able to know just about everything that happens in Israel? When he can see Joab behind the, uh, behind the woman from Tekoa? When David has such a vast intelligence system. But again, though I don't know what David knows at this point, what I can say for certainty is that Absalom is a far cry from his father David again, who refused to manipulate others for the throne, and refused to shed innocent blood, and refused to ever lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. Absalom has no healthy fear of God's sovereignty and rule over Israel. You see, all through Samuel, the throne is not something to be taken. That's why David doesn't do that himself. It is something to be given by God according to his purposes. A king that God must choose for himself. Again, ultimately, I want to point you again to David's heir, Jesus. Who was tempted over and over again to manipulate his own situation by Satan even. Satan took him up and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world. And Satan promised to give him all the kingdoms if Jesus would but take a shortcut. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. You can be king right now. Just bow down, Jesus. Let's take a shortcut to the throne. And he refused. And again, in John 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, it says there, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
So when the crowd tries to take Jesus and make him king by force, Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. I'm not taking a shortcut. I'm not sidestepping. And even on the cross, if you remember, the religious leaders promised Jesus that if you'll but come down from the cross and save yourself, we'll believe on you as Messiah and make you king of Israel. But Jesus refused to sidestep the Father's will. He chose not the path of least resistance or the path of people-pleasing or the path of manipulating others. No, Jesus chose the path of Calvary for the glory of the Father and for the good of the world. You see, Jesus knew that He must go to the cross before He would be given the crown. It was because of His humility and obedience to suffering that he has been exalted to the highest place, and one day every knee will bow to him as king. But a rebellious heart wants to take shortcuts. A rebellious heart says, I don't want the cross. I don't want suffering. I want glory now. And third, a rebellious heart masks its sin and spirituality. Look there now, verses 7 through 9. It says, and at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. And he arose and went to Hebron. After four years of winning the hearts of Israel, now everything is in place for Absalom to make his move. He approaches his father, King David, under the guise of fulfilling a vow to the Lord in Hebron. So Absalom supposedly had prayed to the Lord while he was in Geshur for those three years that if God would bring him back to Jerusalem, he would offer worship in Hebron. It's all so spiritual. And Absalom knows that that this kind of talk will work on a man like his father who actually believes in fulfilling his vows even though he also has his own failures. It must be noted that this is the only talk of spirituality we find on the lips of Absalom through this whole story. And it's all fake. It's all a sham. It's all a cover for his rebellion. It's under the guise of, quote-unquote, I'm just doing the Lord's will. So Absalom goes to Hebron, the place of his birth, the place of Abraham, the place of the patriarchs, The place where David ruled as king for seven years. The place where David was anointed as king over all of Israel. It's it's there where where Absalom wants to go. Now David may have simply assumed that Absalom's just going to visit his birthplace. He probably assumes Absalom's just telling the truth. But for us, we know this isn't the case. Absalom is telling another story, just like the story that got Amnon murdered when he invited Amnon to a, a banquet. I'll remind you here, in case you didn't know, that Absalom, David says, go in peace. Go in shalom, the peace of God. Absalom means father of peace, Absalom. He's the farthest thing from the father of peace. He doesn't want peace, he wants a sword. He doesn't want life, he wants death. He does not want what his father wants, he wants insurrection. Now let me just say this here. Just like Absalom, how often can we hide our own rebellious hearts behind the veil of spirituality? That's how deceitful our hearts can be. 
We can justify our rebellion by actually believing it is the right and godly thing to do. Our culture is filled with spiritual justification for sin and for evil and for wickedness. It is as common as salt in the ocean and stomach aches after Taco Bell. Have y'all been to Taco Bell? Apparently not. It's common. Stomach aches after Taco Bell. Very common. That's how common our rebellion is and our way we would mask wickedness even in spirituality. But that's what a rebellious heart does. It wants to look justified before God for their own actions. And finally, a rebellious heart is deceitful and treacherous. Look at verses 10 through 12 as we wrap this up. It says, But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. As they went in their their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So what we have here at the end is a well-developed, well-planned, well-executed coup. Absalom has worked hard for four years to charm people, to convert followers, and to cover his tracks. Absalom has lied to David, convinced him he's no threat. Absalom lies to another 200 innocent men, pulls them into his plot. Absalom even courted the support of David's highest royal official and advisor, Ahithophel. Absalom surrounds himself with others who are sympathetic to his cause, messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel. Absalom has been a busy little bee for four years. And Absalom commits treason not only against the king, his father, but against God, the true king of Israel. And lest we shake our heads in disbelief, remember that our hearts are just as rebellious and treacherous if given the opportunity. Every sin, if you did not know, every sin you have ever committed is an act of high treason against God. There are no little trifling baby sins. They are all of the highest magnitude of treason. You see, sin is only as is only as sinful as the dignity of the one you have sinned against. You have not sinned against some small God. You have not sinned against some small God. You have sinned against the ruler of the universe. I have sinned against the ruler of the universe, against God, our creator and king. Every sin is shaking our fist at him and declaring that we are actually king. We are the ones who are making the laws. When we sin, we are at Hebron putting our flag in the ground saying, I am God here. That is why sin is so horrible. That is why sin requires no less a payment than the Son of God in the flesh to take our punishment. You see, A.W. Tozer says this about our rebellious nature. He says, because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. His constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him perfectly like a normal thing. 
He is willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but he is never willing to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still in his own eyes king on a throne. And not one, not even God, can take that throne from him. Think about that. Whether you go to a homeless person on the street, the most destitute person in the world, they are still a king in their own eyes. And not even God can take them off their throne. This is what makes Jesus so different from us. Now tune in. Give me two minutes. This is what makes Jesus so different. And so freeing. And so compelling. You see, Jesus didn't come rebelling out of sin. Jesus came to rebel against rebellion to God. I want you to make sure you understand that. Everybody calls Jesus a rebel. But Jesus isn't a rebel to sin. He's rebelling against rebellion to God. That's what Jesus rebels against. He rebels against the sinful and self-righteous and through humility comes to serve and lay down his life for those that don't deserve it. For those that only want to be king. He came not to do his will but to do the will of his Father. He came to show us that the path to joy and the path to life is not the path of self-exaltation or the path of pride, but the path of denying ourselves. The path of humility and the path of serving others. It's the path of dying to ourselves, taking ourselves off the throne, and instead picking up the cross of Christ and follow Him by faith. That's why Jesus said in Mark 10, He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. He said, that's what the kings of the world do. They exercise great authority over people. Like Absalom wants to do. And listen to what Jesus says. But it shall not be so among you. It will not be this way among you. He says, whoever would be great must be the servant. Whoever would be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And we are called, hear me Christian, we are called to follow Him the same way. We must lay down our rebellion and our self-serving instincts and follow Him in repentance and faith. You see, listen, there can be, let me quote another Puritan for you here, Andrew Murray, there can be no heaven in you until all of hell dies in you. And that's pride. You must die to pride and rebellion to come to Jesus. That is what repentance looks like. That is where salvation comes when we lay down our rebellion and we take up our cross. And we don't follow our instinct of the world, we follow Jesus. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus, you are just like Absalom. You have everything this world has to offer, but you don't have what matters most. And that is a right relationship with the king. Not David, Jesus. 
the only rightful king. And so you need to repent because there's coming a day when Jesus will squash all rebellion. There's coming a day when he's going to put his foot on the neck of every rebel and they will confess that he is Lord. But right now, you can do it willingly and lovingly. And for others, Christians, this, rebe this rebellious heart doesn't go away when we get saved, does it? No. This is what we fight against every single day. This is what I have to fight against. Old Jacob still loves being on the throne. Old Jacob still loves the throne. He, doesn't, he loves the crown. He doesn't want the cross. But if I'm going to follow Jesus, it has to be the way of Calvary. So this morning, if Jesus speaks to you, you come. You make a decision. You pray. You lay down your rebellion. You follow Jesus. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I pray today, Father, that though we see the rebellion in Absalom, that we would also introspectively see the rebellion of our own hearts. And Father, we pray that we would see Jesus as a much more glorious, a much more glorious path, even though there'll be suffering and there'll be heartache and hardship. Father, that Jesus is worth laying down my own pride and rebellion for. So Father, we ask you to speak now to our hearts. And may Jesus reign in our hearts. And Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.